0: Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, I know i don 't quite sound like myself today, but uh, even though i don 't have my normal voice, I trust that you can still understand what i 'm saying <laughs> if i didn't if i couldn 't do that, I would ask someone to fill in for me. Mark is glad to, and i 'm thankful for him, fellow elder here, but the Lord's helped me, and I think we'll be okay today so For the past few Sundays, we've been going to the scriptures to find out what the scriptures teach about the church. So let's do a very quick review, okay? We talked first about how the church originated, and we said it is an institution of divine origin, it's not man made, in other words. The church only exists because God, in His love and mercy and grace, decided that He would save rebel sinners. And we've also talked about the distinction between the universal church and the local church. So all Christians are part of the universal church, but we're instructed in the Scriptures to submit ourselves to a local manifestation of the church. And it's within that um, local manifestation of the church that a believer obeys Christ by submitting themselves to that specific body of believers and that specific set of church leaders. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about that. And it's where (coughs) believers are regularly taught and equipped to carry out the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. It's where they are discipled. It's where we corporately sing and pray and worship. And it's where believers use their gifts that God has given them to build up the body of Christ. All those things happen in the local church. And then we asked ourselves, well, wait a minute. Are we sure that the Bible actually teaches such a thing as church membership? And the answer is, if you remember, yes, it does. We had a whole sermon called um, A Biblical Case for Church Membership. Church membership, we we ought not think of it as some sort of modern idea that some pastor somewhere had who wanted more people to come to the church. (laughs) No, the... There are actual commands in the Scriptures that we really cannot obey apart from being a committed part of a local church. Then, once we established the fact that church membership is a biblical concept, we said, well, what responsibilities then do we have as church members? And we took two sermons to go over about nine different um, general... Biblical responsibilities. And then, most recently, last week, we looked at this overriding characteristic of the church, which was this the church is a holy people. Church is a people set apart for God. We talked about this saved unto good works. There are so many Scripture passages that point to this. We looked at many of them last week. Peter says in the first chapter of 1 Peter, as he quotes Leviticus, he says, we are to be holy as God is holy, right? Or Ephesians 2, put it in front of you there, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In Titus also, we're told that Jesus has redeemed for himself a people who are zealous for what? For good works, Titus 2.14. So holiness is to be this overriding characteristic of God's church. It pleases him to have a holy people. It brings him glory to have a holy people because those people then reflect his own nature. So, today, that brings us to this question. What happens when someone in the church begins to live in an overtly unholy way? Well, thankfully, we're not left in the dark here. The Bible gives us instruction And we generally refer to it as church discipline. So today, what we're gonna look at is what the Bible says about church discipline. And it'll be very tempting for me as a pastor, as a preacher, to try to say everything that I possibly can about church discipline all in one sermon. And that's just my temptation, I guess. and just, you know, try to cover every nook and cranny and every question. I don't think it would be wise for me to try to do that, so I'm not going to try to. Uh, we're just going to give an overview of what church discipline is, looking at one of the main passages that's, that deals with church membership. And then I do have some kind of common questions that may come to mind when we think about church discipline, and we'll try to give biblical answers for those near the the, the second half of the sermon. So... That's what we're doing this morning, so let's get right to it. Um, From the very beginning, in the Old Testament, God has always commanded His people to be different than the unbelieving world. He, He set up laws that would make His people Israel distinct from the world. He gave them practices that would distinguish them from the surrounding pagan nations, right? They were not to live like their idol-worshiping neighbors. They were servants of the one true and living God, and so their lives ought to be different. Their lives ought to be marked by different priorities, different standards, different ways of thinking, and so forth. So in other words, they were to live their lives in conformity to what God had taught and commanded them, not what they saw in the rest of the world or even what they felt in their own sinful nature, right? Then, when you get to the New Testament, we see that the standard for the church is really no different. The church is also to be a distinct people from the rest of the world. Think about what a Christian is according to 2 Corinthians 5. He is an ambassador. For Christ. He is a Jesus representative before the watching world. And as ambassadors, uh, we've been entrusted with the message of the gospel, the message of reconciliation. Again, that's 2 Corinthians 5. And so our mission is to tell everybody that we can, as many people as possible, about this God who rescues sinners, forgives their sin, and makes them right with Himself through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life on the cross as a substitute for any and all who will repent and believe in Him, right? And then when we think about the great commission that Jesus gave to all His disciples from Matthew 28, It is not just to preach the gospel, but it says also to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So part of making disciples, which is part of the mission of the church, is to teach one another to live in accordance with King Jesus' commands, right? Right? And we see that just fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. Philippians 1 says, let your manner of life, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or Colossians 1.10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And there's other verses that say very similar things, but... Christians are to live in a way that adorns and commends the gospel to the world. We ought not dare find ourselves living in such a way that works against the gospel, that misrepresents the gospel into something that is ineffective, right? Something that really doesn't change people. That would be a false message we could send about the gospel, by the way we live. How, By the way, how hypocritical would it be for a church to try and go make disciples and try to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us and yet not obey Christ ourselves? Wouldn't that be the epitome of being a hypocrite? Romans 2 verse 21, we read these words. He says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And then in verse 24, he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. So being a hypocrite before the world does damage to God's name. So as we talk about this uh, concept of church discipline today, I think it's important for us to understand that, that when the church is hypocritical, when it doesn't practice what it preaches, in other words, it brings dishonor to our Lord. And onlookers from the world mock and blaspheme God because of our hypocrisy, if that is ever true of us. And so, for the honor of God's name, for the testimony of his church, and for the the purpose of maintaining gospel integrity, God gives us church discipline, okay? In our day, I don't know what it is in your experience, but church discipline is rarely practiced. Have you noticed that? That wasn't always so. It was actually pretty informative to me to read several books in preparation for this and some articles that were just basically historical accounts of church discipline practices from the 1700s all the way into the 1900s. And it used to be something that was distinctive of a healthy church that cared about the glory of God, but sadly, we don't find too many churches doing this in our day, and for that reason, I'd guess that most of us don't have that much experience with it or have seen it practiced well, if at all, right? And I don't know where your mind goes with that phrase either. Maybe you hear the phrase church discipline, it kind of oh, that's, that doesn't sound pleasant, right? It makes your skin crawl. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen it done poorly or maybe you heard about instances where it was done poorly. Maybe it sounds scary. Maybe it sounds harsh. Maybe it sounds judgmental, right? If any of that describes you this morning, I just want to encourage you to set aside whatever ideas you had going in about church discipline and just let the scriptures hit you afresh, okay? And what I hope to show you today, as you saw in the title earlier, is that church discipline is ultimately an act of love. The message is called um, The Loving Act of Church Discipline. So I love what Jonathan Lehman says in his book on church discipline. Let me read this to you. And then we we'll, we definitely are going to go to the scriptures, but it's just a little little time of introductory remarks here. I just want to set this up. So Jonathan Lehman says this in his book on church discipline. He says, should your church practice church discipline? Yes. And then he lists some ways that, that it demonstrates love. He says it shows love for the individual that he or she might be warned and brought to repentance. It shows love for the church, that weaker sheep might be protected. It shows love for the watching world, that it might see Christ's transforming power. And it shows love for Christ, that church that the churches might uphold His holy name and obey Him. And then he goes on to say this, which I think is important for us to consider as well. He says... By abstaining from discipline, in other words, by not doing it, we claim that we love better than God loves. After all, God disciplines those He loves, Hebrews 12, 6. He says He knows that discipline yields life and growth and health, He quotes Hebrews 12, 10. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. He says, yes, it's painful, but it pays off. And he quotes Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So all that to say, I don't know how you've thought about church discipline in the past or or what each of us has been taught about that or what each of us believe about that, but I'd like us to think of it in this light, that it is an act of love, love for one another and love for God. So now let's go to the scriptures and and look at the specifics of what it says. We'll go to one of the main passages about church discipline. The main passage that most people think of is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. If you're not already there, go ahead and find that. Are you there already? Okay, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. So in this passage, uh, Jesus is speaking, and it's very interesting because this passage that we're going to see is about church discipline, it actually comes right on the heels of a parable that Jesus told about a lost sheep. He talks about this man who had a hundred sheep. One of them went astray. And I notice that the man doesn't say, eh, no worries. I still got 99. Losing one's not a big deal. No, he goes on a rescue mission for the one that went astray. He goes after it, not to scold it or beat it, but to restore the wandering sheep back to safety. And he says, when he finds that sheep, he rejoices. That is the immediate context of this church discipline passage. I think that's telling because that's what church discipline is. It is a rescue mission to restore a straying brother or sister in Christ. It's not vindictive. It's restorative, okay? Now let's begin reading in verse 15, Matthew 18, 15 to 20. This is the word of the living and true God. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven." And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. So in just a moment... We're going to walk through that process that Jesus laid us out there. But but first, let me make a distinction. When people hear the phrase church discipline, they often think about the first thing that comes to mind is, is what we might call corrective discipline. But did you know there's another type of discipline that we always ought to be engaged in? We might call that formative discipline formative and corrective discipline. So formative discipline happens all the time in the life of the church. Formative discipline is simply the process of bringing each other into maturity in Christ by the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We, we just The way it's done is you give positive instruction that forms us, right? Forms our priorities, forms our ways of thinking, Hence the name formative discipline. And again, that happens through sermons, um, Sunday school lessons, Bible studies, and even private conversations with one another. Corrective discipline happens, as the name indicates, when correction is needed. So when a church member has gone astray, and that can be even more formal or less formal a less formal example is maybe when, just using random names, when John goes to Tom and he says, you know what, brother, I love you, but I think you're wrong here. Can we talk about this? That's a very informal form of corrective discipline. Whereas a more formal example would be when the whole church is notified of a person's open, unrepentant adultery, for instance, after following the instructions of Jesus in the passage that we just read, right? And here's a good analogy. Mark Dever and Paul Alexander say it in in their book, uh, The Deliberate Church. They said this might help kind of put flesh on this formative, corrective, discipline thing. If we were to compare discipline in the body of Christ to discipline in a physical body, then formative discipline would be like eating right and exercising, whereas corrective discipline would be like surgery. Okay? So there is a distinction there that I just want to draw, and what we're mostly talking about today is corrective discipline. Most of us already know what formative discipline is, even if we've never heard that term, but we're probably less familiar with corrective discipline and how it should be carried out in a biblical way. So now let's, let's just look at the basics of this formal church discipline process that Jesus lays out here in Matthew 18. So let's just walk through the steps. It was, I think, fairly straightforward as we read it, but let's just walk through it. So number one, you go to your brother privately and tell him his sin, Verse 15, and Jesus says, if he listens to you, the implication being, if he repents, then praise God, you've gained your brother. In other words, you've brought him back to safety from what could have been potentially destructive to him. But if he won't listen, in other words, if he won't and doesn't repent, then number two, Take one or two other trusted people with you and talk to him again. Verse 16. And maybe wisdom would dictate taking people with you that you know would be well received by this person. Right? Discuss it with him again with all of you present and listening. And Jesus uses there a principle from Deuteronomy 19 about how a charge should not be brought against a person without two or three witnesses. So the witnesses in this case are to show the sinning person that, hey, it's not just this one person's perception or opinion that we see this sin. There's other fellow Christians who agree and think repentance is appropriate, right? And again, What are they after? To win an argument with the person? No. To shame the person? Just sheer embarrassment? Is that the goal? No. The goal is the same as step one, to restore the erring brother or sister to repentance. Right? So hopefully we're already seeing the loving nature of this process, even if it's been bad in some ways. Unfortunately, though, in a fallen world, there's gonna be situations where even those steps won't result in repentance. That's part of living in a fallen world, right? So, Jesus gives us step number three. He says, tell it to the church, verse 17. And the implication is, that the whole church will then lovingly try to restore this wandering person to repentance as well. It's now a group effort of the entire church. So there might be something like this at a members meeting. Those of you who have a close relationship with this person, please go and talk to them and express your love and concern for them and call them to repentance. It might happen one day if we ever had to do that. And maybe that would take some time. That might take a good bit of time, actually. And then Jesus says if the person still won't repent, it's here at this step, after all these other very private measures, careful private measures have taken place. It's only here that the church is, is charged with the responsibility to. Remove that person from membership. The way Jesus words it is, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be treated as an outsider. Let him be treated as an unbeliever. Now what does that mean? Does that mean the person can no longer attend the church? It may mean that if there's some physical danger present, like that person is being disciplined for physical abuse of someone or something like that. If there's some, some sort of threat to the people in the church, maybe they would not be welcome to come back. But I'd say most often, that person should be allowed to continue coming to church if it's their desire to do so. Why would we say that? Well, because the purpose of church discipline is, again, to restore, right? Right? And what this person apparently needs, which is being shown by their continued unrepentance, they need the gospel. They need what the church has to say. They need to hear the Word of God taught to them. They obviously made a profession of faith in Christ at one time because they were accepted into church membership. But now, they're exhibiting behavior that is more like an unbeliever than a believer. So the church doesn't say, we're kicking you out of the church, never come back here. Instead, what the church has to say is, at one time, we affirmed your profession of faith because it seemed genuine to us, but now we can't affirm it. We can't, in good conscience, affirm that you're a believer in Christ since your sin, brother or sister, has been lovingly pointed out to you by multiple people who love you and you still won't do the characteristic thing that believers do when they're confronted with their sin, which is repent, right? So we're saying this, by all outward indications, We cannot say that you're a believer in Christ. That's a heavy thing to say. And by God's grace, we pray that what that will do is serve as a wake-up call to that person. We pray that they'll say in their hearts, maybe sometime later after some reflection, or hopefully instantly, but if it doesn't work out that may. If it doesn't work out that way, maybe after some time of reflection, we pray that they would think, you know, those people love me. I believe that they do love me, and yet they don't think I'm even saved. What am I doing? And maybe God restores them to their right mind, helps them to think clearly about their sin, and grants them repentance through that. And maybe God uses that entire disciplinary process to show them Either, yes, why am I not repenting, Lord? And they go to the throne of grace and they receive forgiveness. Or maybe they say, you know what? Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I've deceived myself this whole time and I've even deceived other people. But now I see it. My heart was never changed. And maybe God draws them even through that act of church discipline to bring them to himself. So, that's the general process of church discipline that's laid out there by Jesus. But let's not forget verses 18 to 20 as well. And we might call this, instead of the process, the promise. Let's talk about that. So, what, what authority does the church have to carry out this type of correction? Well Jesus says truly I say to you and whenever Jesus says that by the way he's signaling to us that he's about to say something with great emphasis and importance. Okay, He says whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now if that Sounds familiar to you. You're not crazy. It's actually the same thing Jesus said to Peter two chapters earlier. Why don't you flip back just a couple pages in your Bible and look at Matthew 16 and verse 18. Matthew 16, 18. So this is right after Peter has given this good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus commends him for that and says, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father revealed that to you. And then verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and Peter is petros, it kind of sounds like the word for rock, and so Jesus kind of uses this wordplay here. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then notice, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds familiar, right? Now, Roman Catholics will take this to mean that Jesus is giving Peter, as an individual, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so they take that to mean, well, Peter must be the first pope, the head over all the church. And of course, we won't get into all of refuting all of that, but it's a very far stretch that's not warranted by the text. In fact, if they would go forward a little bit into Matthew 18, where we've been looking, we see that Jesus actually gives the keys not to Peter as an individual, but to all his apostles who function as this foundation of the entire church and really represent the entire church. And you even see it in the Greek of Matthew 18 because the us in verses 18 and 19 are plural in chapter 18. So when Jesus says whatever you bind on earth and whatever you loose on earth. He uses the plural form of you. It's like saying, whatever y'all bind on earth, whatever y'all loose on earth. So in other words, if all that is kind of confusing to you, this is what it boils down to. Jesus is giving the authority to the church to make judgments about disciplinary matters. That's what it boils down to. And that's important because it ought to carry some weight for any person who has to be disciplined, right? The disciplinary action by the people of God as a whole, by the church, is being done with the authority of Jesus himself. That's amazing. It carries a lot of weight, and we don't often think of it like that. And as members of a church who are responsible for this, we might even start getting a little anxious about that heavy responsibility. And we might get so anxious that it paralyzes us into inaction. And you say, well, I don't know, I'm going to stay away from that one if I can. But it's at this very point that Jesus gives us some encouragement in the next few verses. He says, so are you back in Matthew 18, by the way? He says in verses 19 and 20, or 19 to begin with, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So remember, this is in the context of church discipline. So when the church agrees about a disciplinary matter and it takes it before God in fervent prayer, God helps them. God gives them what they need to carry out that work faithfully. And then he gives us that famous verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I among them. We, we generally hear that given or quoted as like this general promise. And in one sense it is because we know that when two or three Christians are gathered together in the name of Christ... He is there among them because He lives within His people. But don't forget what the context is here again. The promise comes in the context of church discipline. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you guys come together as a church to carry out disciplinary matters, to preserve my gospel and to preserve my glory and to love one another as I have commanded you, I am with you in that process. It might be difficult. It might be misunderstood by some people. But when you obey what I'm saying, Jesus says, as countercultural as it might be, here's what the promise boils down to I am with you. I am with you in those meetings of disciplinary action in a special way. So we're not left alone in this process. And that is deeply encouraging to me. I hope it is to you. Now maybe what we'll do with the remaining time that we have together is just try to answer, as I said earlier, just some common questions about church discipline. And that may lead us to other scripture passages briefly, and that's okay. But here are just some questions that I thought of in no particular order, and again, it's so tempting to just list and list and list that we don't have time for every question that might be asked. But here's maybe some common ones. Here's one. Does every sin require formal church discipline? The answer to that is no. Now, how do we know that? Well. Because the same word of God that gives us the process for church discipline also says things like this to us. Proverbs nineteen, eleven. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Or Colossians three, verses twelve and thirteen. He says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or 1 Peter 4 8, which says, Love covers a multitude of sins. So, no. Every sin doesn't need to be brought up for church discipline. Every sin may not even need to be confronted for that matter. Sometimes we're just to have patience with one another and bear with each other's failings. It's going to be like that until heaven, right? Maybe that's something that you've worried about with church discipline. Maybe you've wondered... (laughs) You know, does doing church discipline mean we all have to become like the holiness police where we're sort of side-eyeing one another, you know, suspicious that this guy might be sinning in some way and I need to catch him in the act so I can go confront him? No. As a matter of fact, I'd say most sins. That's a big statement, but I think it's true. Most sins don't require church discipline in a formal way. Now, what kind of sins would require this type of discipline? Is there any indication from Scripture that we have on this? Well, uh, we could compile some lists of sins from the Scriptures like ones in 1 Corinthians 5, which says that there are some sins that if done by a person who claims to be a believer, that we should not associate ourselves with them, like the sexually immoral, the greedy, an idolater, a drunkard, a swindler, that's 1 Corinthians 5, 11. But if we stuck strictly to those type of lists, would that mean that we would do church discipline on a greedy person? but not on a person who is caught embezzling money or a person who physically abuses their spouse or something like that? I don't think we can take those type of lists to be exhaustive, in other words, but I think it does help us get an indication on the type of sins that should be brought up. And so I have three uh, helpful criteria here for thinking through this, and these aren't original to me, but they're very helpful. Here's the type of sins that would warrant formal church discipline. Sins that are outward, significant, and unrepentant. Outward, significant, and unrepentant. So let's talk about each one of those really briefly, not to spend a ton of time on this one question, but outward, It's the kind of sin that you can see with your eyes or hear with your ears. It should not be something that you suspect to be lying quietly within a person's heart, right? I think this person is sinning in their heart and therefore we should discipline them, of course not. We don't bring speculation into this. This is for open, outward sins. It may have started in the heart. Matter of fact, we know it did because that's where all sin begins. But it has an outward manifestation that is obvious and observable, okay? And then it has to be significant. And in one sense, all sin is significant because it, it separates us from God. But to say that every sin is on the exact same level, I don't think would do justice to God. Scripture and what it says about some sins. There are some sins, for instance, that are going to require harsher judgment. Read Matthew 11 as one example. Maybe an example will make it more obvious too. It can be a sin to be anxious, right? But it probably doesn't warrant public exposure and removal from the church, right? Right? Maybe someone speaks a harsh word in a moment of frustration. Maybe they have an impatient moment with their children that you witnessed. These are all sinful things, but do they warrant formal church discipline? Probably not, right? So what we mean by significant is, is this sin so significant that it calls into question a person's profession of faith, something of a grievous nature that would lead us to say, I cannot say in good conscience that that person is a genuine believer if they persisted in that sin. Which brings us to the third helpful criteria, unrepentance. So it's gotta be a sin for which the person will not repent. We saw that in Matthew 18. So it's for it's for these instances where a person has dug in their heels, they will not let go of some particular sin. By all outward appearances, they appear to love this sin more than they love Christ. And so those three things are helpful, and it has to be all three of those things to be a sin that would be appropriate for formal church discipline. Outward, significant, and unrepentant, and I think that's a wise way of thinking about it, trying to use biblical principles. Again, so tempted to go into every nook and cranny. i try not to do that. More can be said. Hopefully that's helpful if you had that question in your mind. Next question. How quickly should the process of Matthew 18 be carried out? Well, I think this is where we see the wisdom of God in calling for a plurality of elders to lead his church. Because this is where the collective wisdom of a group of elders would need to come into play. Maybe you noticed, as we read it earlier, there are no time frames given in Matthew 18. Jesus doesn't say, give him two weeks to repent, and then if he doesn't, go to the next step, right? Right? There may be situations where the elders think they should move rather quickly. There may be other situations that would require more patience. So part of this is left up to the wisdom of the church's leadership. And um, that's part of what those men will have to give account to God for. So please pray for us. We will give an account to God for how we cared for His sheep, including how we handled this or failed to handle this. Church discipline matters. There is something related to timing that we ought to see that comes out in 1 Corinthians 5, because that tells us in that passage there are some cases when it is appropriate to remove someone immediately. There was a situation in 1 Corinthians 5 where a man was openly having sexual relations with his father's wife, presumably maybe his stepmother. And Paul scolds the Corinthian church for not acting in discipline on that man. He says, this is the kind of thing that isn't even tolerated among pagans. And he says, you guys are arrogant to do nothing about this. That's what he tells them. He says, you should be mourning Over this. And he instructs them to remove that person from among them immediately. So apparently, there are some situations which are so grievous and obvious and damaging to the name of Christ and his church that the church is called to act very quickly. Okay? So, what speed should things move? The answer we have to give is it just depends. And please, again, pray for your elders. As they would have to assess disciplinary issues as they arise and and just try to take action in wisdom. So, we desperately need your prayers. Next question What does excommunication mean? I haven't mentioned that term at all, but it definitely should be mentioned in a sermon about church discipline. So, excommunication essentially means the cutting off of communion from someone." So when the church excommunicates someone, they are excommunioning someone. You see it in the Word itself. And and this is not to be confused with the Roman Catholic teaching and the way that they think about excommunication, because they would use that term in a little different way to say that a person who's excommunicated is pretty much anathema. They are definitively cut off from God. They're removed from the church. They're basically going to hell, essentially. But in the Protestant sense, what we mean by excommunication is as a person is removed from the communion of the church in membership and therefore removed from the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper with the church due to their unrepentant sin, okay? So the act of communion or the Lord's Supper is... I've said it before when we've been taking the Lord's Supper together, it kind of acts as this vow renewal, this renewal of a person's profession of faith when we say we take the bread, we take the cup, we're saying, I still believe. He's still my Savior, right? But if a person is removed from membership uh, by an act of church discipline, that person would not be able to participate in communion. They would be able to attend services if they wanted to. We pray that they would do so, actually, um, so that they can continue to hear the gospel, but they've lost their privileges as a member and they've lost their privileges to take communion with the church. And how that would apply here, since uh, here at JBC we have an open communion, in other words, uh, you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in the Lord's Supper, you just have to be a baptized believer. But you'll notice that we typically say, whether it's Mark leading that or myself, the the way that we uh, try to uh, quote-unquote fence the table is that we say this is for baptized believers who are not living in unrepentant sin or under any church discipline. And that would include church discipline from other like-minded churches as well. So to answer that question, essentially, excommunication means the same thing as removing someone from membership. Now can somebody, kind of a related question, can someone who has been excommunicated be readmitted to the church membership? I'd say yes. That's the whole goal of church discipline again, right? It's restorative, it's, it's to wake them up out of their sinfulness and lead them to repentance. And so if they were to repent, And if the church sees the fruit of that repentance, that person will be welcomed back into the membership of the church with open arms. And all those details, of course, again, would be kind of left up to the leadership and discretion of the elders to kind of assess what's taken place to the best of their ability. Okay? Next question when someone gets removed from membership, is the church saying that they are definitely not saved? Is that what we're saying? The answer to that question is no, we're not saying definitely. We do not have infallible knowledge as church members or as church leaders of any person standing with God. We can be deceived. We can think someone is saved when they're not. We can think someone is not saved when they might be. And so, the act of removing someone from membership, if discipline led to that final step of removal, that act is simply saying this. And I've said it once or twice in this sermon already, but I'll reiterate. What, that's, what that act is saying to that person is the church is withdrawing its affirmation that this person is a believer in Christ. So we're just saying we can no longer in good conscience affirm that you are a Christian based on your continued unrepentance. That's what we're saying. So no, the church is not making an official infallible pronouncement on a person's salvation. We don't have the ability to do that. It's simply doing the best that it can to observe the fruit of a person's life, trying to be as faithful as we can be to not affirm people in deception, people who are living more like unbelievers than they are a believer, right? By the way, If you have questions about any of this, that's what we're here for. Let's talk further after the service or some other time, set up a meeting. Again, I'm just trying to give some general questions. Here's the last question for today because we're gonna run out of time. What responsibility do the church members have in that last step of discipline where a person is removed from membership? In other words, is that last step the removal of a person from membership, is that the responsibility of the elders or is that a responsibility of the church as a whole? Well, let's think back to what Jesus' words were about that last step. He says, tell it to who? The church. And again, if they will not listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the implication is that the whole church has lovingly gone after this person to try to restore them to repentance, and the church is expected as much as possible to be of one mind about this person's state with God. So they are to collectively treat this person no longer as a brother but as someone who still needs the gospel, as an unbeliever, and that would obviously you know, involve a certain amount of unity in that action. And so the way I understand this is that each member is to be involved in that process. It is not a procedure that's carried out by the elders alone. It is a church-wide removal of a person from membership. And again, that church-wide action carries a lot of weight it is a it functions in a very strong way not in a harsh way but in a strong way toward a wayward person to where we hope and pray that they will say what am i doing this entire church voted together to say that they don't believe that I am saved. It's not just the elders. So I can't say, well, those elder guys, they just don't like me, you know. The whole church decided this. And we just pray that, that the weight of that will be a wake-up call for both uh, wayward believers as well as people who perhaps were self-deceived in the first place, and maybe they'll come to Christ for the very first time. So, that's the way that um, this is the way that baptistic churches like ourselves have historically done this was in a congregational fashion. So, it's in our bylaws that we've chosen to do it this way as well. Um, People will be removed from membership upon the recommendation of the elders and a three quarters vote of the members present at a members' meeting. So, I'm not sure if you've made it this far, and it hasn't clicked with you yet, but one of your responsibilities, if you are a church member, should you be called upon to do so, is possibly to have to cast your vote to remove someone from church membership who is living in unrepentant sin. So... If we're going to be obedient in this area, none of us can hide and, and leave I'll leave it to others to decide that. Leave me out. This is an act that Jesus leaves to the church. And so we do it for the glory of his name, even as hard as it might be. We could talk about so much more related to church discipline. I don't know if I've raised more questions than I've answered for you today, but I'm glad to talk to you about any of this. Um, None of us longs to be put in a position to have to carry out formal church discipline. It's not pleasurable to us. I wouldn't think any of us would want to remove someone from membership out of the enjoyment of it or something. It's a sad thing to have to do. We don't desire to, uh, to see any professing believer go to these type of lengths of unrepentance. But as one of the pastors of this flock, I also don't want us to be thrust into a position where we need to deal with something and we're not prepared to handle it in an obedient and God-glorifying way. We need to be ready for that if the case would ever call for it. Prayerfully, it won't, but we need to be prepared. So again, if you have any questions, please talk. You may have such a good question for me about this that I'll say, let me get back to you after I think about that. Um, but let me, <clears throat> let me close today with a, a quote from a man named John Onwachequa He says this, just short and to the point. It kind of sums up the importance of church discipline and kind of the gravity of it. Really the gravity of not doing it. He says, quote, sin doesn't ruin churches. Unconfessed and unaddressed sin does. End quote. So there's going to be sin in this church, From now till glory, right? Because it's made up of sinners. Myself is the the foremost one. But that's not going to ruin the church, sin in itself. What will ruin a church is when sin just goes unconfessed and unaddressed, unchecked. So we talked about at the beginning of this sermon about how church discipline is an act of love, and on the last day when we stand before God, I pray that we can stand there and know that we were obedient to Christ in how we handled sin in the church. All of it just guided by love for one another and love ultimately for God himself, right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to be a healthy church in this area. Lord, help us to think biblically about church discipline. Help us to see, us, help us to see it how you see it. May our feelings not guide us, but instead Scripture. May our fears not stop us but may a regard for your word propel us forward if this process is ever needed. And Lord, just place a deep love for one another in our hearts that we would never for one second try to participate in affirming someone in a self-deceptive state that might result in their eternal destruction. Lord, help us to speak the truth in love to one another. And most of all, Lord, give us humble, contrite hearts to where when we are confronted with our sin, we immediately repent. Lord, help us to be like the wise man in Proverbs who loves the person who rightly rebukes him. Because it demonstrates that that person loves us enough to ensure our relationship with you is healthy and flourishing. And Lord, thank you for your promise that when we must engage in the difficult matter of church discipline, that you are there with us, giving us wisdom, helping us along the way. We're just thankful for that. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.